Welcome to another episode of Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so, and I'll give you a daf or so. I am Aryeh Cohen, and welcome to this Beit Midrash in the closet. We are seeking refuge in the Tent of Torah. Uh, this week, uh, we had another um, another week. I want to dedicate this podcast to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her just astounding courage in which she, she recounted the story of her night of afternoon, evening of horror when, during the insurrection on top of the fact that she was traumatized as a child a sexual assault survivor, and has used the opportunity, has used the opportunity to help other people heal, to bring awareness to sexual assault, to trauma, and bring awareness to what happens when things like this happen, like riots and uh, assaults and insurrections and threatening people's lives. It's not a game anymore, folks. In any event, for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she should have a refresh refresh, she should be totally healed physically and spiritually. Our thoughts and prayers are with her. Our votes and our agitation and, you know. Okay, so we are on, in Baba Batra, Nun Hei 55A, about five lines from the top in the layout of the page that was established in Vilna by the widow and brothers Ramlo these 150 years ago. We're in the middle of this fascinating, fantastic sugya about Dina de Malhuta Dina, the law of the land is the law, the law of the state is the law, actually, to be more uh, accurate. And uh, that's where we're gonna. That's what we're gonna do today. Uh, so we had a little. We had a teaser last week. We had a teaser last week where where we saw that Shmuel said, in one case, um, that the law of the land is the law that you have to pay with a star. But today we're gonna get the full blown frontal Dina de Malchuta Dina assault. Know, it's not really an assault, but okay. Shalach Rav Huna Bar Aven. Rav Huna Bar Aven sent a halachic query. Yisrael shalakach sadeh migoy, uba Yisrael acher vechazik ba. A Jew who bought a field from a non-Jew. And another Jew came along and made a claim on it. In other words, he did something to show that he was the owner of it. He invoked one part of the semiotics of ownership. Ein motzin otam We do not remove the field from the second Jew. And Rabbi Avin, and some manuscripts, Rabbi Avin's not there, and Rabbi Eli, and all the rabbis are equal, are together on this word. Now, that's kind of surprising, because all the rabbis aren't equal on breakfast cereal. Well, maybe especially breakfast cereal. But all the rabbis are equal on this thing that you cannot, that the, if, if a Jew comes, and that we talked about last time, Right, because you have this gap in time, because non-Jews acquire or sell with money, 
and Jews acquire or sell with a deed. And so when a Jew gives the non-Jew the money, then the field goes out of the ownership of the non-Jew. However, it doesn't go into the ownership of the Jew until the Jew gets the shtar, until the Jew gets the, the deed. And so there's this gap in between. And it reminds me of that there's a there was a musical based on a Kurt Vonnegut novel a long time ago. If anybody remembers this or saw this, you could email it to me at thewidowandbrothers at gmail.com, and I will be forever appreciative. There's a song about how that's where lawyers make all their money when the money moves from one place to another, and in the middle there's this thing. So that's what it brings to mind for me. But that's that gap that we're talking about, and that's where the third guy, the other Jew, comes in and decides that he's going to plow that land or he's going to do something else in order to show that he's the owner of the land and that it belongs to him. I'm a rabba. So Rabbah then follows this up by saying, These three matters were taught to me, or told to me, by Ukvan Bar who was the exilarch. Right? And it's uh, in the name of Shmuel. This is not a normal, it's not a usual occurrence that the exilarch uh, is a tradent for a halachic statement. But here you go. Dina de Malchuta Dina. Ve'arisuta de Parsai. Right now we're going to read. It's not, it's actually the correct girsa there is Darishan de Parsai. We're going to go back to that in a minute. Ad Mem Shanin. Vahani Zaruri de Zavin Ara Letaska Zvinhu Zine. So Shmuel said these three things. One, the law of the state is the law. And the Rishonim point out that it's Malchuta and not Malka. Right, so it's the law of the state, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. And Arisuta or Darishan de Parsai Admem Shanin, and that's actually fascinating. In that, the if one follows the manuscripts, the original, the oldest manuscript is Darishan, and Darishan is actually a a a Persian word, a Pahlavi word to be exact, and it which means possession. And it applies when it's found in the Sasanian law book, the Darishan for various things, and not necessarily for land, just like Chazaka is not necessarily for land. However, if we follow, so Darishan de Parsai ad Memshanin is a, chaza, a Persian type of Chazaka, Sasanian type Chazaka, that is a claim of ownership, is either, now here we have either until, is a limited in time for 40 years, or it's only after 40 years. And there's a, a dispute in the Rishonim. It seems the, the language seems to say it's only until 40 years, though uh, one, of the, a more, one of the better manuscripts, Hamburg, does not have odd. So would mean 40 years? That might, uh, not clear which side that actually strengthens. Okay, so Darishan de Parsai, Ad Mem Shanin, the possession of, the Persian possession is... 40 years, as opposed to the rabbinic possession, which is three years. Now, if we look at the way that this girsa, this variant, comes out in the manuscripts, we see that the earliest, our earliest manuscripts are from the 12th century or so, 13th century. And so they are well removed from Sasanian, from Pahlavi, which is Middle Persian. And so they, the scribes, did not really understand what Darishan was. 
And so we start, so the oldest manuscripts just had Darishan, but then later manuscripts start, Darishan becomes Ve'arishta, or with a, uh, a shin, so it could be pronounced Ve'arista, and then to Ve'arasta, which gets us to our printed editions with Arisuta. So we move from Darishan, which is possession, to Arisuta, which is tenancy, tenant farmer. Now, um, in a conversation this week, I was talking to Simcha Gross, who's a scholar of, a Talmud scholar and a scholar of, of Sasanian Persia. And he was, t- and, and, and in the conversation, it came out that there is no such thing in Sasanian law of a 40-year possession, 40-year darishan, right? However, there is a notion of leasing out lands that belong to the king for an, for a finite period of time. And so it could be, it's not clear, that, and, and this is within the context of lands, right? The next halacha is about a tax collector who comes and seizes property because of the lack of payment of taxes, seizes property for the kingdom, for the state, because of the lack of payment of taxes. So it could be that, ironically, the uh, girsa of the Tfus, the Vilna girsa, could make sense, right? That a tenancy, a Persian tenancy, could be until 40 years. But I still like to go with the Girsa Darishan because there's a there's a kind of a, a law, in quotes, because it's a humanities law, it's not like a scientific law or a legal law, that Lectio Difficile, the more difficult um, variant is probably the correct one. So Darishan, which is an unknown, uh, an unknown word, is probably the correct Variant. So Darishan the Parsai Admem Shanin, so the possession under Persian law is 40 years. In other words, a non Jew takes 40 years there to have a Chazakah, or that when a non Jew takes a Chazakah, it's only until 40 years. And Vahani Zarure, the Zavin Aralataska Zvinhuzvini. And these, now once again, we have a, a dispute here. These Zarure, that uh, so Zarure could I they so there's a difference in the Rishonim so the Rashbam uh, probably following Rabbeinu Gershom has it that Zarure is our wealthy people who are um, right I mean rich people with landed estates and they're probably reading it like Zihara which means landed estate on the other hand the Meiri and the Yad Rama interpret Ziharure as tax collectors. The Hebrew there is Gizbarim Shalom Munim Ligviyata Taska. Right, that's in the Me'iri. The treasurers who are appointed to collect the Taska. Taska might be a, uh, a transliteration of a Latin word meaning tax. Who sees his property, and so these tax collectors, these Zarure, seize the property and sell it off to pay the back taxes. The Yad Ramah also derives it from Zihare, from Zihare, but says that that leads to the meaning one who collects money from the estates. Right? Sakhalov, um, in his dictionary, the lingu- modern language, gives the definition from Zihara, Ziharara, with two rishes, meaning tax collector. There's a difference in translating the statement. The Rishonim understand this as meaning rich people who bought the early Rishonim, the Rabbeinu Gershom, and following him, the Rashbam that it means rich people who bought land from somebody who needed to sell it off in order to pay their bills. Sokolov's translation yields, and he's, his translation agrees with the Adraman the Meiri, tax collectors who seized fields 
for non-payment of taxes and then sold them. Um, so those are two. Those are, are two different things, but they involve a sale and a purchase of land, which one might think is is questionable, but is not because it is the law of the land, or it's because it is the law, right? And that's what Shmuel is saying. Now, this is possibly tied, if we remember, uh, a bunch of weeks ago, earlier in the parak, the notion of sikrikon. It was in Gittin, and we had it in our, in our Gemara, that this is when Romans came in and they stole land. The legionnaires stole land from Jews. They forced Jews to sell the land. And then other Jews bought it from the Sikrikon, whether or not that is considered a sale. Here, Shmuel is saying, because it is a law of the land, um, that uh, it is uh, the sale is good. Now, Dina the Malchuta Dina is kind of a crux of a lot of conversations that have happened over the years in how to define defining the Jewish community and defining Jewish law vis-a-vis the non-Jewish community. And so, what is Dina the Malchuta Dina? The law of the state is the law. So the Rashbam says it refers to any regimen of taxes or other types of state law which are customary in a kingdom. The law is that all of the residents or citizens or subjects, whichever one uh, one wants to uh, put in there, accept upon themselves those laws. And therefore, if because of those laws, one person ends up purchasing the property of another, as we just saw, it is not theft, right? If it's because of those laws. So in other words, if, and this is what happens in the Ziarure, somebody doesn't pay their taxes. And so the government comes in and seizes their land and sells it, or according to the other definition, uh, that a they have, they're forced to sell their land in order to pay their taxes. They sell the land to rich people and then the rich people sell it off. So that is considered a legal sale and is not theft. Okay, so that's for the Rashbam. The Me'iri holds that Dina the Malchuta, Dina is that if the state enacts any law which is not directed against a specific person, for spite or vengeance or whatever, but rather is a law of universal applicability, then that law must be followed. And it is as if there was a general consent in the law. It is as if everybody accepted some social contract, everybody accepted this type of law upon themselves. And then Me'iri uses this very reasoning of also to justify the the fact that courts outside of the land of Israel, Jewish courts outside of the land of Israel, actually have power when the Gemara says that only courts that Shlichutayo Avdin, and only court, the courts can only do certain very specific things at as agents of the courts in the land of Israel. No more courts in the land of Israel, and those very specific things are very narrow. But we know that we do everything in the Meir, says we do everything even up until and including capital cases. We know that happened in, in Spain, for example. And he says that it's because of this kind of, of communal consent or a social contract. Um, and so he says that that's also what Dina de Malchuta is. Dina Malchuta is that if you're living in a state, you, you accept the fact that there are going to be taxes and then you pay the taxes. The Yad Ramah says Dina de Malchuta is dafka, something that has a specified amount of time that is, it's annually uh, of time, meaning annually, or a specified money, amount of money that per person or per household. 
And this is also a legitimate din of the Malchuta Dino when it's for a specific item. For example, the king needs X number of horses, right? You're paying for building the road or, you know, extra school hours. That is a Dina de Malchuta Dina. Now, the question is whether or not in this list, Dina de Malchuta Dina is one of the three, or it is kind of an overriding principle, and then you have two more, right? So there are these three things, and the question is whether it's Dina de Malchuta Dina principle, and then two specific laws, Arisuta de Parsai and Zarure, um, and that's what the Rashba says, that Dina de Malchuta is not one of the same things. Remember that Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the other. So Dina de Malchuta is a principle, and we see that Dina de Malchuta comes up, pops up, in other cases. In other places, there is a, so probably the original place, This here we see that it says that this statement is transmitted by the Reish Galuta, in the name of Shmuel. Actually, it's transmitted by Rabbah in the name of Ukvan Bar Nechemia in the name of Shmuel. But the only place that it's translated straightforward is in Gitten, that Shmuel responds to a Mishnah. And there, the, the, the case that the Mishnah is talking about is that all all contracts that are placed into the courthouse, that, that go up and, and are, are judged by the courthouse of non-Jews, even though even when their signers or sealers are non-Jews, they are all kosher. They are all okay. Except for divorce and manumission writs. And then on that, the Gemara goes through a whole thing saying that can't be. The Gemara is very uncomfortable with this. So apparently, because it said all Shtarot, right? All deeds. It doesn't make a difference whether it's a sale or whether it's a gift. Bishlama mecher. So, all right, I understand with a sale that is done in a non-Jewish court. Once the person, the money is changed hands. So then there's a there's an acquisition. Ushtara raya balma, and the deed itself is merely a testimony to that sale. So I don't care if it's Jews, non-Jews. There was a, there was money that passed hands, and that's when the acquisition happened. Because if money had not passed hands, he would not have put himself in the position, in a worse position, and written a deed. But if it was a gift, what is the Kenyan? What is the acquisition? Is it not in this Deed, and here's where the stam comes in in full force and says, but this star is just a a a, a pot shard, meaning it's worthless, assumedly because it's a non-Jewish star, a deed in a non-Jewish court. Amar Shmuel, Dina the Malchuta Dina. Here's where Shmuel powerfully comes out and says, no, the law of the land is the law, and therefore. The law says, the the state says, you do these deeds in the court, and this is how things are bought and sold and given in gifts, and that's the law, and that's where it is. And we follow that, except in the case of divorce and manumission of slaves, for other reasons. So that's the original case. And then there's another famous, there's another important discussion of this in Baba Kama, and there is where they get, where they bring in the notion they analyze, they theorize it in terms of katsuv, 
right? Th something that is finite or something uh, and universal or something that is, you know, it's not, it something that is, that is, that is specific and universal and not something if, if the king just decides to put a tax on the Jewish community, as sometimes happened in, in Eastern Europe. The government decided, all right, the Jews have to pay X. So that's not, that's considered gezel. That's theft, because that's a Jew tax. That's not a universal tax for all subjects of the realm. But if there is a tax or some other levy placed on all subjects of the realm, and Jews happen to be subjects of the realm, so then that is Dina de Malchuta, Dina, that is the law of the state, and then therefore it is it is the law. Okay, now, the questions that this raises is, then, if we have this principle of Dina de Malchuta, and therefore we follow this principle, and therefore we operate according to, this, to the principle of the law, right? Does, what does this say about what is Jewish law? In other words, if we can fall back onto, if we could go to the, to the non-Jewish court and do our deeds of sale, so, well, on the one hand, why do it in a Jewish court? On the other hand, if we adopt that as the way to do these things, right, that, for example, if the tax collector comes and sees his property then you could buy that and then sells it off for taxes. You could buy that property and that becomes the law. So that's, that's not a Jewish law. That's the law of the land. So what is the border between Jewish law and non-Jewish law? So there are two, th two other questions which, which arise from this. One is Shmuel is an Amora, right? He lived in Babylonia. He lived in the fourth century or so. But the Mishnah in Gittin that Shmuel was commenting on was an earlier was a Tanaitic Mishnah, of course. The Mishnah, all Mishnayot are Tanaitic. So that's, and it's from the land of Israel, right? And so we see that already prior to Shmuel, there was a notion in rabbinic law that you have to follow non-Jewish law in certain cases. The other question is, what was the status of Jews in Sasanian Persia? Up until recently, general thinking was that Jews had some sort of semi-autonomy, judicial autonomy in Sasanian Persia. And therefore, if that's true, so when it says, it is actually uh, narrowly applied to only certain cases, because on the whole, Jews had judicial autonomy. They, they, in other words, they followed their own law. And then you have, and in general... The notion, the this dina de machutadina, the cases that it comes up with, that Shmuel's statement comes up, is in cases of taxes and levies, and in that case in Gittin, which has to which has to do with with um, deeds of sale, so monetary law. However, recent scholars have raised the possibility that actually Jews had less than uh, full or even semi judicial autonomy. They basically had to follow Persian law, and if they had to follow Persian law, then Shmuel's notion of Dina Machuta Dina is not that radical, right? In other words, it's just saying, yeah, or more radical, right? It's saying that we have to do what we have to do. And so when it says Dina Machuta Dina, it means in general, the law of the state is the law. And then we also have these cases which are odd, in other words. So when we're dealing with an non-Jew who sold land to a Jew, and then somebody else claims that that law, that that land wasn't originally the non-Jews, it belonged to somebody else. So we have to use this measure of 40 years to know whether or not the non-Jew had the land, because that's what Darishan, Sasanian Darishan is. Or in the case of a, this kind of a sale, which might, which we might think is problematic because it's a tax collector who seizes land and then sells it off. So there, in that case, we also say, no, that's fine. 
because of this is the law of this is the law of the land. But in general, we don't have to say Dina Machutadina because Jews didn't have judicial autonomy and Jews didn't have recourse to Jewish law, except in, you know, probably in, you know, in Shabbat, in, you know, ritual law, personal law, probably. So there, you know, like marriage and divorce. So that's a very different understanding of Dina Machutadina. And this goes through the ages. The radical articulation of this, for example, is the Rashba. Rabshimah ben Adrat in Spain in the 14th century, 14th, 15th century, who is asked a question about the inheritance. And he says, the details aren't, aren't, aren't that important, though it's kind of interesting because the non-Jewish law is more egalitarian than the Jewish law, but that's neither here nor there. And he goes on a rant in the middle of the chub of the responsa to say that obviously we can't follow the non-Jewish law because... Even the the questioner said, would we assume that the non-Jewish law was an, an implied condition in this contract, in this marriage contract? Meaning that we all understood that we're going to solve, we're going to f- follow the law. Anything that we do is going to be under non-Jewish law, so we don't have to write it out. We don't have to write it out as a contract, in the contract as a condition, because you're allowed to write conditions in the contract. And the Rajpa says, no, obviously not. You can't do that. Why? Because you might as well just throw out all the books of Jewish law. You might as well close the yeshiva and close the Beit Midrash. You might as well just close up shop and go on home, and all we'll do, and, and, and then our holy Torah will be just thrown on the side of the road, and nobody will care. Therefore, we have to maintain judicial independence and follow Torah law. Right? And then, of course, it goes back and forth. And one of the theories of the reason that the, that the Rambam wrote Mishnah Torah was that Jews were going to non-Jewish courts because the Jewish courts did not have Jewish courts did not have the same sophistication in certain areas of law. We'll get back to that in a minute. But one of the uh, 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 a a scholar of Sasanian law, Maria Masuch, and Sasanian law and Talmud writes the following. No matter how we choose to interpret this much-debated statement, that is, Dina de Malchuta Dina, it seems to refer to the undeniable fact that Iranian law was in force in the Sasanian Empire, implying that it would be senseless not to observe it, hereby possibly also ruling that the official legal system and its authorities were to be followed, not opposed. With this important statement, Shmuel also seems to have tacitly conceded that the Sasanian legal system was acceptable, since the laws of the state were not unjust toward the Jews. And later on, she writes, the Talmud bears witness to the existence of Jewish courts beside Zoroastrian ones in the Sasanian period, which leads us to several puzzling questions regarding the relationship between the two. What was the position of the rabbis in their courts within the Sasanian legal system? How did they interact with the Zoroastrian clergy and with other legal authorities, especially with Persian state officials who alone had the power to enforce the judgments of the court? Did the rulings of the Jewish courts remain valid if they were contested in a Persian court? To what extent did Persian legal concepts have to be accepted and even adapted by the rabbis, thereby possibly influencing the development of Talmudic law? And over the past couple of decades, there have been many important advances in understanding the relationship between Talmudic law and, and Persian law, led by Yaakov Elman, his student, Shai Sekunda, and, and uh, Simcha Gross, and others, Jeffrey Herman, who are doing, who are doing this great, who are doing this important work. And the question then is this question of the barrier, the boundary between 
Talmudic law, rabbinic law, and Persian law is an open question, right? But it does. But the fact of Dina Malchutadina, followed immediately by this darishan that were a, a quotation of Persian law, points to the fact that this wasn't a theoretical question, but this was an actual question, and that there the the boundaries are not between the two are not so clear. And this brings up the the, the there is an analog to this later on when. Uh, in the Geonic period with Muslim law. And Gideon Lipson, who has a wonderful book called Jewish and Islamic Law, Comparative Study of Custom During the Geonic Period, where he writes, despite this formal, formidable array of methodological difficulties, right, in other words, the methodological difficulties of researching the relationship between um, Islamic law and Jewish law, I've tried to blaze a new trail in the examples discussed in detail in this volume. My conjecture as to the interrelations between Jewish and Islamic law relies on four basic assumptions. One, the fact that the Jews were living as a minority in Muslim society, subject to Muslim rulers, caused them, sometimes willingly and sometimes under duress, to relate to Islamic law and on occasion even to abide by it. Neighborly relations and contacts between Jews and Muslims at all levels reinforced this tendency and were manifested in a variety of ways in theory and practice. Second, the laws or institutions in question were commonly accepted in Islamic law but their status in Jewish law was that of exceptions, insofar as they lacked precedent in Talmudic literature. Third, there are attestations to the appearance of these rules in Muslim legal literature before their earliest mention in Gaonic responsa. And fourth, Muslim legal literature indicates that Jews adhere to Islamic law in certain specific circumstances to be discussed below. Right. So that is the same sort of situation that we're talking about here with less. I mean, in the Gaonic period, we have way more both Muslim law and Gaonic law to be able to put next to each other. But in the rabbinic period, we have less sources, and especially less sources about the Exilarch, who makes an appearance here. But we, we see here that the boundary between Jewish law and non-Jewish law is porous. And that raises the question, which we've raised before, is what is Jewish law? Is it just Sasanian law or Roman law in Aramaic? Or is it distinctly different? Here, perhaps, we see that the Darishan is 40 years, whereas Chazakah is three years. So that's a difference. Right? Now the question, what is that based on? Because Yusakapio is also not three years. Are both of them based on that? And uh, Maria Masuch has another article in which she talks about, shows the, uh, the relationship between Talmudic law, Sasanian law, and Roman, and Roman law. Okay, now... We know that over the years, this came down and uh, has been a central question in the modern times, for example, in a very simplistic way, the reform movement or based on coming after Napoleon's Sanhedrin, where the, the question of citizenship became focused on the question of fealty to Jewish law or fealty to the law of the state in some way. And there, Dina the Machutadina started to gain an outsized, perhaps, importance. Um, the Reform Movement then threw out Halakha and said, we are citizens of this state. And then they said, please give us rights in this state. And the state said, well, maybe. And Voltaire said, yes, as citizens, not as Jews. And then we had all of modernity. Thank you. You're welcome for, your, for the history lesson. Um, and I apologize to all the historians amongst you. This week's podcast is brought to you by Chloni the Circle Maker. Is your business in a rut? Are you looking for an angle? 
Want a way to pull in some extra bucks? Well, you've come to the right place. Coney is a real rainmaker. No, seriously, he'll make it rain like you've never seen. I'm talking raining buckets, big buckets, pouring, flooding. Come to Coney if you want to hire someone who's going to really make it rain. Coney at www.notametaphor.com. Really, not a metaphor. Okay, so now back to the Gemara. So this is, that was, that's what exploded right here in the beginning of our sugya. So, Bahani Zaruri Dizabin Aralataska Zvinu Zvine, and these, these tax collectors who seize land, sell it in order to pay off the land tax, their sales are considered sales. And this is only referring to the Tasca, to the land tax, but not to the Kharga, which is an individual tax. My Taima, why? Kharga akarkaf de gavri manach, because the Kharga tax is per capita, right? It's on each person's head. Karkaf means, capita means head, um, skull, right? So therefore, it is not, it's, it's a different, it's a whole different thing than the, than the Tasca. Each individual person is liable, is responsible for it. And this is, right, the difference between civil taxes and kind of royal taxes, that the, there's no difference between how much money you make. And we had this before on 7b, whether you assess people for building the wall based on their existence, right? You have X person has to do the whole thing divided by X number of people, or how close they were to the wall, or how much money they had, right? And that's how we're used to it. You have an income tax is based on how much money you make. Here, this is harga is based on your existence in the kingdom. You have to pay a tax. Rav Huna braid Rav Yeshua mar afilu sa'are dekada mishtabdi lechargas. Rav Huna, we have a bunch of Rav Hunas here. So this is Rav Huna braid Rav Yeshua. Rav Huna, Rav Huna Rav Yeshua's son says that even barley that's in a, a container is under lien for the charga tax. Amar Ravashi, Ravashi said, Amarli Huna Barnatan, so another Huna, Huna Barnatan said to me, Kashi be Amemar, Amemar asked him a question. In Cain, if that's true, that everything is under lien, is everything is, is available to be taken for potentially uh, to be taken for the uh, for the Kharga tax, in Cain, Bitalti Rushad Therefore, in that way, you have just totally invalidated. You have wiped out the heir of the 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 eldest son, who the eldest son gets twice a double portion in the inheritance. The Havale Raui, the Eina Bachor Notel Braui Kimuksak, because there's a a, a a unique law about the inheritance of the eldest son, which is that the eldest son only gets double in property or assets that are held and not potentially held. So he wouldn't get assets in futures, or he wouldn't get ass he wouldn't get double in futures. He wouldn't get double in next year's crop. Right? But here Everything is under lien for the the Kharga tax, so therefore none of it is all of it is only possible because they they don't know how much the tax will be, and therefore it could be the king's and not theirs. So therefore he doesn't get double in anything. You've gotten rid of the firstborn inheritance, double inheritance. Amarlay, so Rav Ashi said, so if that's your argument, then Tasca is also the other. The land tax is also a problem. But what should you rather say? 
It, it, it applies in a person who paid his land tax and then he died. Right? And so then everything he has is his because he paid off the tax. This too refers to somebody who died right after paying the Harga tax, the individual tax. Amaravashi, Amarli Huna Bar Natan. So Ravashi again says that Huna Bar Natan said to him, Huna Bar Natan said to me, Sheiltinu Lesafre de Rabba. I asked Rabba's scribes, those who wrote the his, those who were apparently in his Beitin or in his yeshiva, his study hall, and they wrote the the contracts for him. and they said to me, Hilchita Kirav Huna of Yeshua. The law is like Rav Huna Braid Rav Yeshua. Velohi. And that's not true. Hatam lo kume milte huda amar. Right? So they are, uh, the law is like Rav Huna Braid Rav Yeshua, who said that even barley in a container is under lean for a charga. And that's not, in Ravashi and uh, Huna Barnatan said that's not true because they only said that in order to support their position because they had already written contracts for that, that took that into account. And they just wanted, they just wanted to make sure that they weren't going to get into trouble with the contracts that they wrote. But I'm Ravashi, and Ravashi said further, Pardechet misayea mata. Now, Pardechet and Saklov, Saklov has Pardechet as a some kind of an official. The Rishonim all see Pardechet as a, a lollygagger. That's my favorite word this week. A lollygagger. Somebody who just wants, who just loiters and doesn't work and is uh, a, has no money. And this lollygagger, and, and this lollygagger had to pay taxes. And, and, the, and this is talking about a case where the community saved him. They, the community came to his assistance in paying the taxes. Aval andiski siyata deshmayehi. Right, so, I'm sorry, I, I missed the, the, the important phrase here. Pardechet misayeh amata. The pardechet, this lollygagger, has to help out the community with their communal tax burden. Vahani mili datsilte mata. And that is in a case where the community had come to his assistance in paying his own, his personal tax. But if a person gets an andiski, which is, Saklov says it's another type of an official, but the, all the Rishonim understand it as this person got a pass. They forgot him. So in that case, it's siyata deshmaya, and therefore it's his own personal gain. And and it's not the community's gain. Amarav Asi, Amarav Yochan, Amarav Asi said the name of Yochan, Hameitzar vehachatsav, Mafsikin b'nichsei hager. Avalinyan lo. So Ravasi said in the name of Yochanan, a boundary line, which is in the middle of a field, and a sea quill, which is a a stalk-like plant that's tallish and goes deep into the ground, and you plant them in order to distinguish between fields. If it is planted in the midst of a field or in the midst of two fields that belong to the same person, remember we had a couple of uh, a daf ago, the notion of a meitzar in between two fields of a ger, right? They belong, both belong to the same ger, the same, con- the same convert. And whether or not you could 
acquire both of them with just doing a, a chazakah on the Meitzar. So here, it says that the Meitzar and the Chatzab and these sequel boundaries, they do, they divide in the estate of a ger. In other words, you can't acquire both of them with one mechanics of chazakah by doing one thing, by, you know, by plowing one side of it, one part of it. But... In the matter of peya, that which you have to leave in the corner of the field, and impurities, they do not, this uh, this uh, boundary line and the sequel line, do not separate the two, the two fields. Ki Rabin, when Rabin came from Eretz Yisrael, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, he said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, Afil the Peah Vituma. No, it also separates even for Peah and Tuma. So now the question is, what does that mean? Separates for Peah and for Tuma, for the corner of the field and for impurity. Peah Maihi, what does it mean separate for Peah? It's not because it says in the Mishnah, these are the things that divide fields for the case of Peah. So as if you have two fields, you have to leave two different corners for the poor. If you have one field, only one corner. So if you have things that divide and make it into two fields, so then you have to leave more for the poor. Hanachal. So these are things that divide. Hanachal, the river. Shlulit. Shlulit is a smaller... Um, Shlulit in modern Hebrew is like a puddle, but Shlulit in rabbinic Hebrew is like a smaller type of flow of water. Biderech harabim. And a path which... The public has trod v'derachayachid, and a path which an individual has trod u'shvil harabim, and a larger path which uh, is given over to the public u'shvil hayachid akavua, and a pathway, uh, a road, some kind of a small road that is definite, that is uh, has been, uh, you know, it's there for a long time, and everybody knows it. Whether in the summer or in the winter, was in summer winter, and when it's the rainy season, so then these things could get washed out. So that is what it means by dividing in the terms of peah. Tuma mayhi. What does it mean to divide for impurity? It's not because it says in the Mishnah. If somebody comes into a valley in the rainy season. And there is a and there is something that is impure, a, a grave or something like that, in a specific field. And he says, and He says, I went to that field. But I don't know if I went if if I uh, passed over the grave. Or I didn't pass over the grave. So Rebelezer says that uh, he's pure, and Chachamim say that he is impure. Shia and why? Shia, Rebbe Lezer, Omer, Safeg biat tahor, Safeg magatuma tameh. Rebbe Lezer says, if it was, if what was in doubt was the going into the field, then he is pure. If what was in doubt was going, was touching the that which was impure, then he's impure. Why is that? Because the Safeg biat going perhaps going into the field, into that place, um, that's two doubts. That's a svek sveka. It's two sveko, two doubts. Because I don't know if I went to the general place, and I don't know, even if I went to that place, whether or not I was on top of of the grave. But if it's just a fake magatuma, I know I was in the graveyard, but I just don't know if I if I walked on top of the grave. Um, so then he is impure. Avala Shabbat lo. 
but for Shabbat, that's not the same thing. In other words, so this is going back to the question of the Chatzar and the, the Meitzar and the Chatzav, the borderline and the uh, sequels, which divide between fields. For Shabbat, that is not considered a division. Um, and the reason it's not considered a, a division, well, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, but the reason it's not considered uh, it's not considered a division for the purpose of whether or not there are two public domains. And if you, even according to the person who says that if you bring less than the appropriate amount, less than a grogeret, less than a pit, into uh, Rishut Rabim, so there's no problem. If you bring two of less than the appropriate amount, which comes up to the appropriate amount, the amount that it takes to transgress, so then it is a transgression. And um, the question is then, if you do it in in two parts, if you do it into two different Rishuyot, or you you walk in one Rishut, in one public domain and cross over into another public domain, whether or not that's a problem. And so uh, here we're saying that the sequel, a sequels and the Meitzar, the boundary line, are not a distinction for Shabbat between these two fields, making them into two distinct fields. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to continue next week picking up with Rabba's statement about Shabbat, and then go on to the question of doubtful occurrences of Tumah and Tara. Okay! And with that, we are finished 45B, this week's DAF. Thank you for spending this time with me. It's been a pleasure. Hope you come back next week. Bring along a friend. My name is Aryeh Cohen. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. Once again, if you remember that song from the Kurt Vonnegut that came out of the Kurt Vonnegut novel, which I don't remember the name or the song, please send it along. Uh, with any other comments, criticisms, or witticisms to Widow and the Brothers at gmail.com. I want to, as always, thank my producer, Ellie Unger Sargon. Check out his podcast, Four Cubits. He's working, he and his partner, um, Jeff Helmreich, are in, in the midst of another series. They just dropped the second in a series on racism and anti racism. Of course, I want to thank my wonderful Haruta Charlotta von Robert, without whom this probably would be way worse. And the communications department, Shachar Cohen Hodas, who made that lovely Daf Shui logo. And with that, I bid you a fun farewell, Shavuotov.